This is the Tame Aperture Podcast. Open the five bay doors, please, Hal. Hello, Hal, do you read me? Do you read me, Hal? Do you read me, Hal? Affirmative, Dave. I read you. I read you. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. Sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Welcome to the Tame Aperture Podcast, where we talk all things movies from first-time directors, indie films, art house, Coen Brothers, and much, much more. Today on the podcast, we talk the 2007 crime thriller by the Brothers Cohen, No Country for Old Men, starring Josh Brolin, Javier Bardem, and Tommy Lee Jones, and based on the novel of the same name by Cormac McCarthy. When a man runs across a drug deal gone wrong, the hunter becomes the hunted in this neo-noir crime thriller. The film was released in November of 2007 and grossed an astounding $170 million on a budget of $25 million and runs 122 minutes long. I'm Gabe Vienendahl, filmmaker, film instructor, and movie enthusiast. I'm joined by Alan Martindale, veteran podcaster and editor. And joining us today is special guest filmmaker Anthony Drake from Los Angeles, California, or Orange County, I should say. Anthony, how the hell are you? I'm doing great. I'm very happy to be on the show. I'm a big fan of, uh, of you guys and the show and this movie, so I'm very excited to, to chop it up with you guys. Well, man, we're, we're excited to have you. Alan, how are you doing this new year? Just dodging the virus, man. Just dodging the virus. Quarantining it up still into 2021. Yeah, we're, we're, we're still going strong in the quarantine. So, hey, Anthony, so you're, you're in Orange County. What part of Orange County are you in? Lake Forest. Oh, yeah. Nice, man. I actually, uh, I used to live in Laguna Niguel way, yeah. way. Oh, yeah, it's not too far. It's like 10 minutes away. Yeah, pretty cool. I used to I used to play at that Lake Forest golf course all the time when I was a kid. Oh yeah, I go there almost like I would go there a few times a week. I got my bucket a day and just go hit there. It's a nice little place to just kind of relax and hit some balls. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, yeah, yeah, it's an awesome little track. Yeah. yeah, didn't learn very well, but I cut my chops there, cut my teeth there. It's okay. Yeah. Well, that's that's good because now we can all say we've lived in the Southland. Anthony's a native. Uh, I was a five year resident, and Alan was also a resident at some point. Way back in the day. Way back in the day. As a as just a wee lad hitting golf balls on the old. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so uh, today we're talking uh, No Country for Old Men. This is going to start us out for the 2021 year. Uh, first off, I got to say, I, uh, I gave Anthony the choice here to make the call for the film. And uh, he couldn't have gone a better direction, at least for me, because uh, as you noticed in the intro there, I added uh, first-time directors, indie films, Coen Brothers, and much, much more, only because this is our second Coen Brothers film. And to be honest, this could be an entire, po- for me, not, I don't know, we'll ask Alan what he thinks, but for me, this could be an entire podcast on the Coen Brothers, because I've said it once, I'll say it again, Alan's probably tired of it. Here's my sports analogy. You have two filmmakers, Kubrick, Michael Jordan, Coen Brothers, LeBron James. Okay, so there's my basketball analogy. The goats, my favorites. Alan, what do you think about No Country for Old Men? You don't have to get into the details, but what about this pick from Anthony? Uh, Okay, so here's the deal. When I saw this movie, when it came out, um, I don't remember. I remember walking away being unsatisfied. 
And so when I heard we were listening to this, I was like, this will give me another good chance because this movie is so well loved, uh, so uh, well respected by everybody. So I thought, give me another chance to dive into it, kind of dissect it a little bit and see what's going on and see if, if I just missed something. And um, I left feeling with the similar, with the similar sensation. Like I, I felt very similar towards the end and, and I'll explain it all. I still, I think it's a great, fantastic, outstanding movie, competently shot. I mean, competently directed. It's, it's the acting's outstanding. Obviously the cinematography is great. Uh, but there, there's a few things that are, they're irking me a little bit. I love, since you guys are the, are the Coen brothers guys, I'd love to, to pick your brains a little bit on this one. Yeah. Well, let's ask Anthony. Cause I was going to say, what, what about this movie made this year selection? What, uh, what kind of drew you to this film? For me, it's really the versatility of the Coen brothers. And this I think was their first dramatic film in their filmography. If I'm correct, they hadn't really done much drama up until now i think this was 2007 and before this was i think the the man who wasn't there so i think the reason i picked this is because my first introduction to coen brothers was the big lebowski and if you told me that someone made the big lebowski and someone made no country for all men they're the same filmmaker i would never believe you in 100 years because sensibilities seem off and when i watched this movie for the first time i was absolutely blown away that this could be from quote-unquote comedy directors or quote-unquote lighter film maker like the Coen brothers do with Oh Brother Where Art Thou and some of their other films. And a little bit of it was the West. I do not like Western at all as a genre, but my favorite film of all time is Paris, Texas. This, I think that resembles some of those tones as far as in the way it's shot and directed. And if you were to ask me, this is the LeBron James of movies of all time for me. There you go. This, uh, I'll forgive you a little bit, Anthony, okay? Because you're younger than me. This is not their first drama uh, or crime thriller. Now, well, Blood Simple. Okay, thank you. You corrected yourself before I had Simple. Blood Simple, I would say, is you could consider a thriller. This to me, actually, and it's interesting that you say that because I watched this film again and I think, wow, this is an advanced version uh, a more elaborate, more precise, more crafty version of Blood Simple in a lot of ways. And the way mm-hmm. that it's shot in kind of the atmosphere and the tonality of the film, there's a lot of comparables between this and Blood Simple. I actually love Blood Simple. That's the other one we did a podcast on. And I think this carries a lot of nuance similar to Blood Simple as well. But you're right about kind of the follow-up work when you look at Raising Arizona, The Big Lebowski, Hudsucker Proxy. Mm -hmm. They throw in Miller's Crossing, which is kind of like this gangster drama. So that's a little off, but it's not quite like a neo-noir like this. So you're right. Eventually they come in and then Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And all the other ones that follow. So this one definitely tonally is a shift from everything... I would say mostly everything after, after Blood Simple. Mm-hmm. And then you mentioned Big Lebowski, which, which totally is totally different than this film. Right. And, and you, what was the perception around this film when it came out? Was this, oh, this is another Coen Brothers movie. Let's see if this is going to be a wacky one. Or was this generally known this was going to be a different sort of film? I was 11 years old when it came out, so I don't think my mom was taking me to he's see age, this. He's aging us now. He's aging us now, Alan. Darn I it. need to know what this experience was like. I, I have to ask. You had to go ask your mom? No, I'm just kidding. 
<laughs> well, I don't remember what everyone else's kind of perception of the film was. I just remember me going to the theater. I, I mm -hmm. literally remember going. I went with, and the reason it, I, I find it interesting that you bring that up because I went with my wife, right? That's how old I am. <laughs> and, uh, and then I went with my uh, extended family. I had my mom and my parents there. And they all hated it. We walked out of the theater and they're like, that's the most boring, <laughs> slow, absurd, unrelevant movie I've ever seen. And I just was like infatuated with it. I was like, you guys, and I had just graduated my undergrad in film, right? So, oh, so you were, oh I was about God. three years, three years graduated. And so I was just so caught juiced up. up. Oh, oh, I was juiced God. up. I was like, this is the greatest movie ever made. <laughs> and then on the other end, Alan, you said this wasn't so such a good experience for you or you didn't, you didn't feel the same way. It, it left me so unsatisfied. There are so because it, of the ending. Because of the ending and a specific uh, pieces of the ending that really kind of just let, I mean, it was just, it just fell flat for me. And mm. it if, they don't, if they don't give it to you in a bow, Alan doesn't like it. No, it's not even that. Like, I, it's, I, I, you know, it's, I'm kidding. And we'll get into it. You know, I'll, I'll tell you exactly where my problem they, they build up this fantastic, outstanding movie. It is intense and it's scary. And they build up this, this antagonist who's, terrifying anton sugar is terrifying you see him on screen and you just don't know what he's gonna do and then it just totally falls flat on its face mm. and i just don't understand the decision to, to do it the way they did it and the fact that it's, it's more than two-thirds i'd say you know uh whatever you uh three-fourths even more than that i'd say four-fifths of the movie is so good it's so mm. it's like I'm sucked in, but just because that ending was so uh, unsat, it, it, there's no oomph. There's, there's, it's not giving me anything. I just am left with that bad taste in my mouth that I can't get past it for some reason. Okay. Let me ask you this, Alan. Are you ready for this? Yeah. Okay. Here we go. Question one to both of you, but to Alan primarily only because he's shitting on the ending. If you were going to, and, and so from an editorial standpoint, okay, or a directorial standpoint, if you were going to recut this film, what changes would you make? Don't answer it, Alan. That's a bad, <laughs> you're putting them in a tough spot, Gabe. It, it, it's tough. It, just, I mean, just from an editorial standpoint, I don't know. I'd have, to, I'd have to kind of sit down with it. But you build up this cat and mouse game. I'll just, I mean, I'll just lay it out right now. You build up this cat and mouse game. So enthralling, so intense. Everything I just said, like, it's incredible. You're sucked in and you're wondering what's going to happen. And then they kill him off screen. They kill him off screen and it's not even by the guy who's chasing him. What the hell, man? Like, that is to me, that, that's the worst. It's not even a payoff. It's, well, the I'm Mexican cartel was chasing him. It just wasn't the guy we were as interested in. Yeah, mm -hmm. I, I, didn't, I don't care about some other guys. Like, <laughs> and to me, I, and, and I, I'm really interested to see what you guys, you know, how you can explain this to me because I didn't quite understand all the characters involved in this. Like, I, I really, mm -hmm. Woody Harrelson's character, as much as I loved him and mm -hmm. as much as I loved uh, every scene he was in, I'm not sure he was necessary to the story. Uh, the, the, I assume the guy in the office built in the office was, he's a drug dealer or a kingpin or something. I don't know. Um, I'm not sure that really needed to be in the movie at all, even though I liked it. I think it added to it, but it just kind of, it just, there was a bunch, a bunch of things that just kind of felt thrown in there. 
And I don't know if it's more relevant to the book. I'm a little bummed because I knew at some point we were going to cover this film and I wanted to read the book first so that I can, I like doing that. So I can, it it was inevitable that Alan was like, we're going to cover this at some point. Right. I mean, (laughs) it's, it's just, it's a, it's a, it's a huge film. Everyone loves it, especially for film buffs. So, so I'll be interested to see what you guys think because I know you guys really love this film and I'd love to to hear what you think of some. I know I, I can see how you, uh, you cleverly uh, disguised your answer there by not answering my question. I don't know. I would. Okay. I'll tell you straight up. I would not have him killed off screen. I would, I would definitely not do that. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's, no, that's, that's a, that's a fair answer. I can go with that for sure. That's, that's the first thing I would do. What would I, make it more satisfying to see him die on screen? I'm curious. Like what, what it just, the, just the, I mean, do you want to see his character die? No. I mean, not necessarily, but I want one of them to win. Okay. Mm-hmm. I, want, I want a, a definitive, I want one of them to achieve their goal. You know, like to me, that's, that's the movie. That's what the movie's about. And I don't know how you half ass it. I don't, I don't know, man. I mean, and that's, there, here's the thing. Watching this movie, I, I am fully aware. I am not smart enough to understand everything going on here and what it's about because. Yeah, nor am I. Yeah, I think we've established that in this podcast, Alan. The most you're not smart enough to understand the depths of these of these messages. So wouldn't be the first time. Let's not fool ourselves there. Wouldn't be the first time. Anthony, let me let me follow it up with you. That I won't I won't trick it up with that question. Uh, although Alan, you did give an answer, and I can see that. Like if you want to see the 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 closure of seeing the death on screen and maybe the death on screen by a party that we're more interested in. We're not as interested in the cartel as we are Shigor. Cause he's, by the way, that character is just, I find that character fascinating, which we'll get into, I think in more depth, but so good. So good. Um, but uh, give me a, <clears throat> a quick Anthony on your side. Uh, I don't want to say if you're going to recut the film, cause that's, those are, those are deep waters to tread. Um, I'll give you a lighthearted question that I, that I found um, when I was, when I was putting, when I was rewatching this, I was trying to figure out, cause you had mentioned before that, like, if you look at their portfolio work before this, the, the, pre- the previous 10 years is all kind of comedic in nature. And so what I was curious is, did you laugh at any moment in this movie? Did you I laugh at this movie quite a bit? Okay, interesting. And I'm curious where and kind of why. I laugh at that entire scene where he's scaring the guy in the gas station. I think to me, there's something evil about that, but also his character, Anton Chigurh, knows what he wants. And I think he's messing with him. And I think it's hilarious. And I think the way he toys with these people is funny in a little bit more of like a diabolical way. I also think that the side characters are particularly funny too. I think the lady in the motel, when he's going through and looking for all of them, and he's given her the map of the room. I think those characters, you can tell are very Coen brother-esque characters. And then to go back to your point about the end, the only reason I'm acceptable, okay with this end is because it's the Coen brothers. That's they, elaborate on that a little, because I think I understand what you're saying. They but, have the pass, I think, to not give us that ending. There are, I think, 
101 movies that have that ending where the two guys are at the end and they're going to meet and they're going to fight and then one of them's going to win. And trust me, Alan, in 99% of the movies, I would want that ending. We've seen that ending before with the two sides clashing and we see the who wins. I think that makes it even more interesting. You know, we'd, I think we all want the window into Llewellyn's death. You know, I'm curious about that. But I think as an audience member, it leaves a lot of it leaves a lot of questions. But I think I love when I leave a movie and there's a question I can fill it in for myself and I can think about how he may have gotten shot or what happened. I like that. I I, I enjoy like I enjoy that they didn't show whether Shigur killed his wife at the end. Like I I like that. I like I like Mm -hmm. I'm not against ambiguousness. Um, Oh, she's dead. She's dead. She's dead. She's dead. His shoes are red. He's dead. Right. Right. But uh, the one thing, so if, if it weren't the Coen brothers and you were watching this movie, same movie, just not mm-hmm. Coen, would you be okay with the ending? Like, was it satisfying to you? No, I'd probably think the filmmakers are being pretentious. Okay. But, but to be, be honest with you, but because yeah. you're familiar with, with their work and you know, uh, and because of the people who are involved, right. I think Roger okay. Deakins, I think Roger Deakins is, you could argue, the greatest filmmaker of all time, director, writer, cinematographer, anything hands on. I think his sensibilities are out of this world, especially in a film like this. I think his his lighting is perfect. Shots are perfect. I think he tells a story better than any cinematographer ever has. Yeah, I don't think there's any. I agree with that. I don't think there's any arguing on on the Deakins front when you're talking about like artistic and technical excellence. Mm-hmm. through cinematography and, and other things like you mentioned but yeah his sensibilities are 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 out out of this world they really are and alan won't agree because alan won't agree with anything that the mass populace <laughs> agrees on which i'm okay with alan I, i'm a little contrarian in that in that but i'm okay with that but well, I don't, actually roger deakins is not a good cinematographer like he's really overrated because his he wife ha- does everything yeah exactly yeah uh I, i'm gonna say i'm gonna <laughs> brought him up i do want to mention one shot that i just absolutely loved and it was uh it's 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 interesting that it was included in there because um you get a little bit of anton chigurh's personality and it's when he's driving over the bridge and Mm. it starts up above and the crane comes down and like he shoots the bird or he shoots below the bird the bird's flying through the shot as the the crane is coming down i mean it's just a gorgeous gorgeous shot i remember looking at that and thinking i cannot even imagine the coordination that that went into to lighting that and shooting that and getting that exactly right and it was beautiful yeah yeah this to me and the other thing you're talking about we'll just kind of deviate into cinematography for a second because anthony i think it's important it's hugely important i think it's important in this film hugely important i would say uh if you had to pick and i have one and i'll start because I have a, a scene that from a cinematography, uh, you know, uh, perspective is, is really just stands out. And it's the scene where Llewellyn uh, finds the, uh, the drug deal gone bad. <clears throat> and then he goes back that night to deliver water to the one guy who's barely alive because his conscience is getting the best of him. So he decides to go back. And when he goes back, he's parked his truck on top of the hill. And that long fill, that long uh, 
Lynn, with the, the truck in the background and him in the mm -hmm. foreground. This is, uh, to me, and Alan, this is what uh, you can either agree with or not agree with based on your, uh, your uh, what's the word, your uh, love for horror films. But it's interesting because <laughs> I actually found it to be a horror shot. Totally. The way they put it together, which is the truck in the background, you see Llewellyn in the foreground, nothing's there. It cuts back to a close-up of him looking. It cuts back to the truck, still nothing there. Cuts back mm -hmm. to a close-up. And then when it goes back, there's an additional truck with two silhouetted figures standing just over the top just of the hill. Amazing. Beautifully shot, but also editorially and just the way it's done through the filmmaking, very horror-esque in, in a lot of, it, it sounds weird to talk about in this kind of a movie, but it, you know, it has that vibe. Yeah, we've talked about them uh, having a little bit of a horror influence before. I think it was, uh, it was a blood simple. Yeah. And there's that, I think, where was it? Were they in the apartment building or the hotel or something? And it was, it was pretty scary. Oh, in the bedroom, in the bedroom with the volt, yeah. with the bug. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that, that felt very similar. So they definitely have their chops. You'll never, I shouldn't say never, you'll be hard pressed to find any shots that beautiful in a horror movie though. Very true. Very true. But Very that true. shot and that's and that's what uh, it stood out. Look at like favorite scenes from a cinematography perspective. I just love the way that shot. It's so difficult to shoot nights and for him. To, and they just they did it so well there. So that one stood out to me. And the whole I mean, when he goes back, you're just thinking, don't go, dude, don't go. What are you doing? I, I think that's a perfect a perfect lead in, though, to how this movie is so good with characterization through behavior. And how all these you learn about all these characters through their behavior, and how well that the story is told through the behavior, and the character and how the characterization is developed through the behavior. Him going back to give that guy water is a great look into who Llewellyn is, even if it's a small thing like that. I think all of the stuff with Anton Chigurh, all of his mannerisms, the first scene where we see him choking out the the cop. That to me is one of the more visceral scenes in a movie, horror, drama, anything. So I think the behavior of all these characters is really good. And I think that scene is a good, is a good lead in for, you know, the characterization through behavior where he's going back and giving that guy water. Yeah. Go ahead, uh, speaking of Llewellyn, how did he get to be such a, a cunning James Bond-esque type of guy? Like, was it just that's what, that's what I was wondering too? I had, I had never noticed. I had never wondered. Two how. tours in Nam. I guess that'll do it. Yeah. I mean, two tours in Nam's no joke, dude. It's no joke, but uh, I'm not sure you're you're playing cat and mouse with this the psychopath on your trail. Yeah. I don't know that he's. I don't know that he's overly cunning though. I don't know that. He's I pretty smart. He's. I, I'm not saying he's not smart. I, I think, I mean, classify him as like, I don't think he's doing anything. I actually don't think he's doing anything outside the norm of his character. Like if you're a it hunter. Seems as smart as that character could get. If you're a hunter, right. you're kind of rural. Uh, you've, you're, you're, you're a war veteran. They all seem, I mean, they all seem kind of natural to that character's archetype. It seems like it fits in. It doesn't seem like he's overly... James Bondy, like he's doing things that are beyond his capabilities. Well, yeah, I mean, they make it believable, and I and I, it, it did not um, it did not keep me from enjoying the film at all. It was just something I kept wondering. I mean, even Woody Harrelson says, "You saw him, and you're still alive." You saw 
he saw Shagur <laughs> live. Like he even he was surprised by that. But I don't think that was cunning. I think that was just right time, right place, and then using the shotgun at the proper time. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he's been two tours in Nam, so I don't think you know staring down a bullet's a new thing to him. Well, not staring down a bullet, but uh, I mean. Th- the whole maneuvering in the uh, in the motel and getting the other room and hiding the you know just just stuff like that. He just knows how things work. It's just a little. I would I would agree with Alan there. That seemed a little bit elevated above what his character's resourcefulness would be. Because I agree with you, Gabe. He seems he definitely seems resourceful, and he would have these sort of means for hiding money and stuff. But I think when he's getting into the motel and he's really figuring out things, I think that was a little bit maybe above his character. But not if I'm really. I, I disagree really with both of you, and you're both wrong. <laughs> No, we're right, man. You're outnumbered. Uh, I mean, like, it didn't keep me from enjoying the movie whatsoever. It's not even a nitpick. It's just, it was just a question I had. No, no, I uh, completely it, disagree. It, it, um, any flaws that the Cohen brothers have in any of their films? <clears throat> well, here's one of the things is, is I have a, uh, a question in here that I was thinking of, and I tried to be as honest as possible, and it falls in line with what you're talking about. And you're right, Alan, there are very little flaws, I, just the way it is. I'm sorry to tell you. What are the major story weaknesses of the movie? Here's my answer. Not a lot. <laughs> Clean narrative. Clear, understandable. Some may find it boring. I find it fascinating. Character studies into a life. And character. Uh, you mentioned, Anthony, characterization and finding uh, little things of each character. So if you guys have to, what are the major story weaknesses in this film? Well, Anthony, let me ask you, did you find this boring? Cause I've heard Gabe mention that he knows a few people that found it boring. Did, did you think this is boring? No, because my favorite movie is Paris, Texas. Right. And that, and that movie, I think is I already, boring. I made Alan watch that one too. So I think, and I think when there's when the action is done in this movie, it's so well, it's so entertaining. For my money, if there was any filmmaker, if I had to pick any filmmaker to make an entertaining movie for any genre, it would be the Coen Brothers for me. Yeah, I didn't think it was boring at all either. Mm-hmm. I think uh, for people who might find it boring, I almost think if you just add a bit, you just of- watch Uncut Gems or something. Then yeah, yeah, <laughs> I think if you add if you have the same film but you add a score, I don't think they're as bored. Interesting, because that was another thing about the music and score. It's very limited. It's not abundant in this movie. Yeah, that was something I was going to. I was going to bring up, you know. They talk about not using any score, and it almost seems like they use wind a little bit in the film as a score to progress things. If you notice in the beginning of the film, the wind's kind of quiet. And as it gets old, a little bit longer, it kind of progresses. And the Coen brothers talked about this on the Deacons podcast where Joel went on and talked about why they didn't want to use any score. And he said they just thought everything was corny. Yeah, I, 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 I agree. To me, mm-hmm. not having score made it way more intense. Some, I mean, we, and we've talked many, many times on this show about how score can really elevate a scene or elevate a film. Uh, it can also detract from it a lot. And I think they made the right call. To me... If you're not going to have a score, you got to have hell of, hell of a team doing your sound design. And they absolutely did. The sound design in this was outstanding. I mean, from, from the get-go. That's what I noticed more than anything. To the point where even the crunching of boots on sand is putting you on edge. Because 
it's one step closer to doom. Uh, he goes into this, this drug deal gone wrong and every footstep as he's approaching the, each truck is like, oh God, what's going to happen? Can you imagine watching the scene at the start where Shigur, uh uses the handcuffs to strangle the police officer without the sound? Oh. How, how would that play? It wouldn't play as, as deep as it does. No, not at all. No, and, and the sound design on that was incredible. Because those boots are scraping on the floor. That was a little uh, Texas Chainsaw mask. Mm -hmm. cool. Yeah. A little bit of that going on. If you don't mention Texas Chainsaw once in every podcast, every show, man. we're every failing. That's my... <laughs> <laughs> no, you're right. The sound design plays a huge role in it. And I like what you said, which is... It could, if it's one of those things where when you're putting a movie together, it, it, there's this delicate balance. And if you, if you push it too far, it might actually detract from what you're trying to do. Um, and I think, like you mentioned, Anthony, with what they said, that makes sense to me now, which is let's limit this because they found it probably more distracting than it actually was uh, lifting up the movie. So it's interesting. Yeah. It's a, I think it's a ballsy choice to make on a film. Yeah. With these people and these actors and this story and the author and this everything, you know, to not have a score or because they thought it was corny or for whatever, for whatever reason. I think it's a ballsy choice, but I think it's one that, you know, pays off because the sound design, like you guys said, is just incredible. You know, I think they invented the sound for his silencer for when his Shigur shotgun goes off. I think the Coens made that sound themselves. So, you know, they're they if it's not one, if it's not the music being good for them, it's, you know, the sound design, which is pretty top notch in all their films. It's also that thing where <clears throat> they do, uh, there's these just moments of, of quiet. And then those moments of quiet are followed by like harsh hitting sounds. So like there's this one, there's that one scene to me that kind of stands out where Shigor goes to the hotel where Llewellyn's at. It's just after he's realized Llewellyn realized that the tracking device is in the in the suitcase in the in the money and he's sitting on the edge of the sh bed with the shotgun waiting for he just feels like he's going to come mm -hmm. up but this whole minute that we've watched as he's figuring all this out and sitting on the edge of the bed is it's all just quiet it's all silent and then all of a sudden just silent 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 then all of a sudden bam and that air pistol thing flies through the door and knocks him in the chest and mm -hmm. you hear a big grunt and a big you know sound of the pistol so it's like working in those moments of nothing and then all of a sudden hitting with a big harsh sound kind of intensifies it as well yeah it gives it a payoff yeah that, what, that that's what the movie needed for an ending was a payoff <laughs> Well, I think it has one and we'll get into that. I, I actually like the ending, um, but we'll, before we jump into that, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll jump into some other, some other pieces in there. Um, most appealing character. I mean, this could be an easy answer, I think, but there's a few of them in there and they've thrown in some ancillary characters beyond Llewellyn and Shigur. What's, and, and of course, uh, we haven't even talked about Tommy Lee Jones, Ed Tom, uh, as it is in the movie. What's what's the most appealing character throughout the movie for you? Hit it yeah, up. I'll uh, I'll let you Go jump on this one. For me, Tommy Lee Jones, hands across the board. I think he gives the best performance of his career in this film. I think his character is 
so enticing. He gives me an old John Wayne feel in his performance, and not only in his performance, but in who his character is. The scene where he goes and talks to is his cousin, I think it is, it is, or his brother in the wheelchair. That scene to me is my favorite scene in the entire movie. And the way he talks to him about how the idea of contemporary crime is really getting to him and how he, how he as a man is not being able to deal with this contemporary crime and this contemporary violence. He talks about how he never carried a pistol at the beginning of when he was a sheriff, when he was 25. And now there's guys hunting people in his town and there's shootouts and blowing up cars and everything. So to me, his character has the most, most depth, even though I think he has the least amount of time between the three, char- three main characters. His character is one that I always find connecting the closest with or finding the most interesting moments. And I always listen to what his character has to say more closely than others every time I watch the, I watch the film. Yeah. Appealing characters. It's, man, that is, it's really hard for me to answer that one because I think the characters are so fantastic. All of them. I don't think there's a weak point in any of the characters. Um, because you look at, at Anton Chigurh, that dude is just, I mean, he is so, Javier Bardem is so good in that role and he doesn't even do a whole lot. Like just the way he, I don't know. way he walks even. Yeah, like he's so menacing, but he, you look at him and you look at his dumb little orphan Annie haircut, <laughs> you know, and you look at uh, the way he, he speaks and he, he's not your typical antagonist, but he's still so scary. And like you said, Tommy Lee Jones, um, Llewellyn, man, I, I don't know. That's that's a tough question for me to answer. I don't I don't know if I can answer that. Carla Jean, I think Carla Jean's a fascinating character. Yep. Yeah, I mean, everyone. I think it's well directed, fantastically acted. I, I don't know if if I can if I would. Let me ask you this then. Let me ask you this because I think it'll it'll relate and and you can you can pull from this one, which is you know. Aside, we talked about cinematography, but if you had to choose a scene, what 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 scene was most appealing? What scene? I mean, there's a, I think there's a good hit for me. There's a good handful, but I can select a couple, um, and then maybe we can dive into why that's such a, you know, interesting scene or appealing scene to you. If you had to choose a scene, Alan. Well, let's let's hear what what are you thinking, Gabe? Like what what's you got a so couple? What, mm-hmm. So what's interesting is the and when it comes to the characters, I agree with you, Alan. It's so when you build a movie based solely on characters, I mean, there's plot here, but it's not an emphasis. The emphasis is, is following the characters. I liked what Anthony said. I, I, I'm fascinated by Ed Tom. I think he's great. He's increasingly uncertain as he gets older. That's the premise of the film for me, which is as the older he gets, the more un- irrelevant he becomes or feels and uncertain about, you know, uh, his diff- he has difficulty finding meaning in his life. Mm-hmm. And that's interesting to me as, as you get older, like I, I'm not old, but I got, we get older every year. And I just feel yeah. like each time that is, you kind of, kind of grow and mature in your own, in your own life. You, I, I kind of sympathize for him. I, I kind of understand. And it's even looking at my own dad, I go, wow, as he gets older, like, I don't think mm. he's lost his confidence. He's still, he's my hero. He's still my guy, he's still my, my favorite. But as he's gotten older, there's a, interesting transformation of kind of uncertainty and kind of someone who I grew up with as Superman is now a little more like less, not less confident, but just like not sure. And there's like, there's Mm -hmm. uncertainties that are presented. And I love that uh, only because it feels all too real. 
So I do like Ed Tom's character. I think Shigor is the, the, the easy choice when it comes to just pure dynamics. I mean, he's anytime you get a villain and then, like you said, it, that it's played by Bardem the way it is, is great. Uh, Llewellyn is fascinating to me and Josh Brolin kills it because to me, all the characters kill it because when you get a movie that has no dialogue or I, I mean, it has dialogue, but it's very limited and the limited dialogue and you're asked to carry an entire two hours of film. It's a difficult task. Very you, have, you have to represent it all through physical performance. I thought Josh Brolin was amazing. His, his, I think the pacing, the, the, the non-verb, non-verbal uh, expression of, of understanding. So I thought he was great too. So the characters are just fun to me. And not even just fun, but they're interesting. And they're all kind of different in their own way. And then the last thing I'll say is what's interesting about the contrast between them is that Shigor is and Llewellyn, to me, are actually the opposite spectrum of Ed Tom in that even though they're, they're completely confident in who they are, they're, mm-hmm. they're not even sure of the world around, they just know who they are and what they're doing, even though I don't understand what they're doing and why they're like, they're confident this is who I am and this is what I'm doing right now. Do you know what I mean? And so, uh, and it could be the age difference between the, the, the three of them, but the characters to me are fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think Josh does a great job in this film. I think he, I think he talks, I listened the, to the Deacons podcast quite religiously whenever they have good guests on. They did actually a look back at No Country. I'd recommend to any listeners of this or you guys, if you haven't checked it out, to go back and listen. They have Josh Brolin on and they have um, they have Greg Frazier, another cinematographer who asks Roger questions, but very in-depth. And Josh says this was the hardest task he's had to do as an actor because he knew stepping onto that set that Javier and Tommy Lee were in their ballpark. He knew that they were going to be in that sphere of greatness with those characters he was concerned like you said about carrying the film for two and a half hours with the little to no dialogue the actions the blocking he talks about how it was very difficult for him and that how he's like trying to get through that process and how the process was almost like what his character was going through in the film he said in fact so i think his performance goes without being said but i th- goes without being said but i think he does a fantastic job in this film and yeah, Probably absolutely. his best performance. I've, I've, this is, you know, I enjoy him certainly more than this and this than I do in Thanos. Or... <laughs> <laughs> I find, I find it interesting what you said too, which is you were listening to that and he said that go, and that makes sense to me, like going in that Bardem and Tommy Lee, they seem to fit into that mold where they don't have to talk for us to understand. And mm-hmm. if you look at Brolin's previous work, I think he's a great actor, but he's always been. The ver- more it feels like at least the more verbose kind of this is how I express myself and so to do it without that uh, I thought he did great so that's yeah. that's an interesting side note um, when it comes to Alan tell me your favorite scene okay so or most appealing scene however you want to phrase it I, I the love scene inside the room where he's that di- where he's dead where he's supposed that we were supposed to see yeah, yeah, exactly. The yeah. scene that Alan wrote in his head. <laughs> the scene that Alan's typing in final draft. Yeah, My, exactly. Yeah, exactly. No, um, I, re- I really enjoyed that first scene with Sugar when he is in the convenience store talking to the, the, the gas station clerk or the guy who owns it. I loved that back and forth. 
you could tell that he was toying with him and he, he really, really enjoyed it. And then contrast that when he goes to uh, the trailer park office and he talks to the lady who is also in the, the remake of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, I want to say. <laughs> and, um, and he talks to her and she pushes back. Like she's, she's aggressive with him. And so you're thinking, uh-oh, that's, this is going to be bad news for her. But instead, it's almost like he met his match. So he just walked out. It's like he, he enjoys preying on weak people. And to me, that, those, those contrasting scenes really give you a good insight into his character, I think, and kind of what makes him tick. And uh, it's the mind of a sociopath. It's, it's kind of fun to see that. Yeah, he's living on his own uh, twisted and uh, weird principles of, of life and death. Yeah. Because that gas station scene, as we know, is, is great because the subtext there is all it's 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 there, but it's also written out in front of us. It's like you can understand the, the nuance of what's happening. Um, right. And that when he I actually put that in one of my scenes that I laugh at. So and, and, and you had mentioned this too, Anthony, which in that scene you were laughing at. But the reason I laugh is more at the end of that scene after he's gone through all the turmoil of teasing this guy and he tells him to put the quarter back in his pocket or it'll get mixed with the others. And then as he's ready to leave, he turns around and goes, cause it's just a coin. <laughs> which it is, which it is. And you're like, what? It just twists you around. Cause that's when I laugh at the end of that scene, which is so funny cause he's so demented and twisted and he's just taken this guy through the ringer and he's lived now, but it's a weird uh, element of principle too. Like he's, he's two-facing it. It's very, it's mm -hmm. very two-faced, but he's like, he's living by the principle of the coin and the coin landed on heads and the guy called heads. So he lives. Oh, okay. Well, it's, it's just very twisted. Um, and yeah, then he the just tells him it's a coin. It's just a coin. It is. <laughs> so a lot of, uh, yeah, a lot of, I think, I think that, I think going back to that scene real quick, I think that goes without being said, the actor who played the gas station attendant does a fantastic job. Yeah. I think we think of that scene a lot as what Javier did to him, but I think to be in that scene with a powerhouse like him and doing that kind of scene, I think takes a lot for a, I'm, I'm sure he's an, a, a good, a big actor in his own right, but to be in that movie and have that small role. And he, I think he does a great job in that scene. Top Sometimes that's not always mentioned. Top of my head, I can't think of a single performance from a, a main character or a side character or even, you know, a, like that guy. I, I can't think of a single performance that is not out of this world, knock it out of the park. Uh, that's got to be direction, right? That's got to, that's got, I mean, when you are consistently, when your film has consistently outstanding performances like that, that just has to be coming from the direction. Yeah, it would seem that way. Also, I think uh, the writing, just the preciseness of the dialogue. True. Yeah. But but yeah, and I agree with you. I think he's that guy is great because he makes it so authentic. It feels like he runs that store. Like that's what he does. Like that's his job. And they just randomly pulled some guy who runs an old country store in Texas, you know, and, and, and it feels real. But yeah, it's a lot of direction there for sure, yeah. I, I would think. His confusion about what's going on is, to me, he sold it, man. Because that's what I'm thinking, too. I'm like, what the hell? Is, what? <laughs> about? Yeah. Uh, and then, again, okay, this will be my last. And I just have to mention this to get it out of my system. My last. 
is uh, the, 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 the air gun. I mean, that's straight up from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's not in there, but they talk about the air gun and how it kills the, kills the animals. And they, when, they, when they speak about it, they're, it's almost like it's ripped straight from, from that movie. So I, thought, I think there are a lot of, I don't know if they're homages, probably not. I'm probably reading too much into it, but it made me enjoy it a little bit more. In your mind, in your mind, they're always homages to always. Texas Chainsaw. Always. It's always homages to Chainsaw. Um, so did, did we identify your favorite scene, Anthony? We talked about the gas station, but was there something else that stood out? Because Alan was also mentioning that scene, but was there not cinematography, just in terms of general storyline? No, I think you mentioned the scene of him in the hotel room where he blasts open the, the the door handle. I think that scene is fantastic. I think it's a scene we watched quite a few times at school in a few classes to just understand the the editing and the, the pace and how energy is so important in a film. I think that's a very good scene. I think the whole thing is fantastic, though. Not Nothing really misses a beat for me. Um, I love this scene after he gets shot and I believe it's in the shoulder and he's in the river and the dog comes in chases after him. And he's, I like that part of it. I like, you know, there's not much of it that I have, that I have a problem with or, or, or misses much of a note for me. You, uh, you were in the same uh, boat as I was in your notes, which was what are the major story weaknesses? And you wrote not a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not a lot. I don't think there's a lot. Of, there's a lot. I know you guys get, well, you guys can get to the score. Of, of the movie later out of 10, but I think for me, this is. It's up there. This is let me one ask, A, one let me, let me say this, because you had mentioned this about, um, I'll tell you my favorite scene is, and I love the gas station scene. I think, I think everybody does. And I think any faculty member, by the way, LA Film has probably shown that scene. Uh, that's it's like required, I think, writing, right? editing, I think Charlie, cinematography, Charlie, directing, I think, everybody. I think Charlie comes in and is like, have you shown the No Country scene yet? No, you got to get to it. Okay, yeah, all right. I think me and Sorry, Linda Charlie. got in a fight about it once because she realized I was showing it <laughs> and she was like mad at me. Okay. And I was like, I was like, does Linda like it? Do you own the scene? What yeah. do you want me to tell you? She wrote it. <laughs> yeah, she wishes she did. Um, <laughs> No, I like Linda. I'm just kidding. Um, you give her a hard time too about her taste. <laughs> I have her book somewhere. Me too. <laughs> somewhere hiding here. Shout out to Linda. Good job, Linda Cowgill. Good, good work, Linda. You great wrote book. A book. Yeah, good yeah, book. book. It is a good book. Um, the, the favorite scene to me though, and you had mentioned this because I thought it was interesting you brought up Carla Jean because she gets little to no kind of overall recognition. But the scene to me that I love, that I just love is the end when he visits her after she's uh, buried her mother. So uh, Llewellyn's dead. It just buried her mother. She's coming back. And when she comes home, she finds Shigor in the corner of her room sitting in a chair. This scene to me, I loved so much. And the reason I loved it was because Shigor does the same thing he does in the gas station. He tells Carla Jean to call it just like the attendant. And she basically says, shove it up your ass. Love it. And I love, and the reason I love it, and we know the end outcome is she's not going to live to tell the story, but I love that she kind of says, it don't make no difference. The coin don't have no say. And she's like, she pulls the power right out from under him. And I love it so much. 
it's so even good. though it, she she dies i mean i get that and it's sad but the thing the, the idea that she takes the power that he thrives on it's almost like he's trying to hold on to some sort of morality or what he thinks is morality like you know, it's not, it's not up to me. I'm sorry. You know, nothing I can do about it. But, and she's just like, you're full of shit. Yeah. You're, you, you, you just want to kill people. But I love that scene. I love her acting so vulnerable yet powerful. And that mistake scene just hits hard. Mistake me if I'm wrong. Is she the only character to talk to all three of them? She talks to Shagor. She <laughs> talks to Tommy Lee Jones. Then she talks to obviously Llewellyn. I don't think any of the other characters talked it, right? Yeah. She's the only one. So I thought that was an interesting choice from the Coens as well to have her be the only one to talk to Shagor and talk to Tommy Lee's character and then to talk to Llewellyn. I think that's an interesting thing. Her demise yeah. was her demise, but I think that was an interesting thing. No, that is an interesting point. She's kind of the, the tie between the three, the three leads. Yeah, I think. And her performance was very good. I thought Kelly... Kelly McDonald, I think, is the actress's name. I think she did. Yeah, yeah. Job. Yeah. It was outstanding. Um, any other, before we kind of start wrapping it up, we'll get into some, some summaries and then some quick ratings. But uh, any other, just a kind of an overarching question, like any other artistic or technical excellence in screenplay direction, cinematography? I think we covered a lot of this. Acting, editing, yeah. special effects, things that stood out. Well, you know, the, it, it won for directing, it won for supporting actor for Javier, it won for adapted screenplay. So it's a fairly well-decorated film. Could have won for multiple other awards. Hard to find a note technically where this film misses. I'm sure Alan will find one. Alan's got let, one for us. And I'm, let us know. He, already, he identified one. You find a boom shadow somewhere? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'd be in there, man. I've run boom before. Like, I, I, I know the... Uh, the fear of everyone on set. Oh Boom's in the shot. Boom's well, in the shot. As soon as you down there, man, <laughs> biggest pain in the ass. Technically, I mean, this movie is outstanding. I, 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 I top my head, I can't think of anything. Um, to me, Deacons did a fantastic job of taking scenery that was mundane and boring and making it interesting, visually interesting. And that's not an easy thing to do. So I, I thought it was fantastic. But let's, I mean, let's not move on here. I want to, I got to understand what you guys are thinking about this ending. Uh, Anthony, you kind of, you kind of explained yours a little bit. I, I don't know if you want to dive into it a little bit more. Um, but at some point, Gabe, I got to hear your defense of this ending. I have a defense in my summation. Don't jump the gun. Before you get to it, Gabe, though, I'd have to ask Alan. Do you really care to see them at the end together? Uh, no, not necessarily. Not necessarily. But I, I certainly don't want to see our protagonist. Who just dead. Just dead on the floor. And I certainly don't. I mean, it's and I could even forgive, you know, other members of the cartel killing him. I think I actually think that's a cool. That was a cool way to do it where they're kind of speeding off as the cop is pulling up. I like that. But just don't don't. That's the climax of the film. You, you, what do you, I, I don't understand how you kill your protagonist off screen like that. I, in fact, actually, I will say this. I do remember when I saw this in the theater, I do remember I the movie was so intense up to that point. And I was so kind of on the edge of my seat that I was, I remember being a little relieved because it was like, oh God, at least I don't have to live through, you know, seeing that. So, but even after that, the movie keeps going on and just kind of throws some random scenes in there that 
really don't need to be in there at all, I think. Because it's not just the protagonist, but it's also the, the car accident at the end and with the kids. Like, what is the point? What is it? Why? Why even bother? Why not just have them drive off? What's the point of that? I'm sure there's a meaning there that I'm not understanding. I just don't get it. Um, I, I'm fine with Tommy Lee Jones closing out the film. It kind of bookends a little bit. But there's just it's it just so unsatisfying based on the hour and a half we spent with these characters before that. Well, I will say this, and this will kind of lead into to kind of wrapping things up and also getting into some of uh, my summary. But I think partly in response to what you're saying to me, and you had mentioned that you didn't want to see the protagonist die, right? Is that is that fair? So I'm, I'm fine with bad, with, with unhappy endings. Like, I'm okay with that. I don't mind him dying. I just don't want to see it walk. I, I would argue that, that he's not the protagonist. I, I would I argue that Ed Tom is the protagonist of the film. I, and, okay. I mean, I, 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 I can understand the logic behind that, but we spend the majority of the film with this story. I know. I, 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 I know that. And I, and I see that. Um, and uh, Alan, are you, let me ask you this, Alan, are you okay with how Shagor's ending is? No. Okay. So you're not satisfied with how he, how he ends up by there. No, because uh, I don't, I would have rather just have him drive off. I mean, I don't, I don't understand the point of the accident. And yeah, the Alan, let me ask you this. Do you have joy in life? <laughs> I got lots of joy. I'm just Alan kidding. has lots of joy. I've listened to many of these podcasts. I know. Al, Alan's my favorite part because his laugh makes me laugh. So I, you go. Me too. He knows, he knows uh, I'm joking with him. That's part of the podcast. We I got, can't tell you how much fun I had ruffle feathers once in a while. When Alan was crapping down the throat of of Kubrick, I loved that. Last, I loved that. That was uh, so much fun. To, that was so much fun to hear. Not happy with me. I, I've been talking about it. They're not happy about it. It's okay. <laughs> I, I stand if, you, if you give me one laugh, I'll uh, I'll forgive you. <laughs> I, it, I mean, it's coming, man. It's coming. <laughs> I think I know when it's coming because I'm getting ready to do Google reviews. So oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but I would argue that to me, it sounds, so the movie to me, I mean, what's the movie about? Let's kind of, let's, let's wrap it up with the final question as we move into these, the end here. If I had to ask that open-ended question, what's it about to you, Anthony? And then Alan, you can follow up while I follow up uh, after you go ahead. Like, what's it about? If you had to decide. Life, I think, I'm not sure. I think life, the cycle of life, the journey of, of how that, that goes, you see with Ed Tom's character, how is life has kind of been coming full circle. He's not used to the society he was used to anymore. And as we get older, whether I'm turning 25 and I noticed that with my own surroundings or people, you know, middle age, I think aging is a part of this movie. You know, I think it's a lot about crisis of faith and people having a crisis of faith. I think a lot of these characters have crisis of faith moments. I think it shares a lot of parallels with seventh seal interesting better or yeah. worse you know i think there's a lot of parallels there with how they tell that so i think you know when it boggles all down to it i think the circle the the cycle of life we see with ed tom is what i think people should take from from this movie and what i think it's about is that progression of where you're at how you're nice. seeing things change how you're okay with that or not okay with that i think nice alan what what uh, what what's the movie about that's a loaded I, question, I know. I like Anthony's answer. My problem is I want it to be about that. 
But to me, it's not, it's not cohesive enough for me to understand what it's about. And I think that's kind of where my frustration's coming. Because it's such a good movie. I don't, I, it's, it's hard to deny the greatness of this film. But, with, I mean, we didn't even mention Woody Harrelson and that whole storyline, which is kind of shoehorned in there. And it, there, there's so much going on and there's so many kind of side characters and things just kind of thrown in there that I don't feel like it's cohesive enough for me to say, I got it. That's, that's what I think it's about. And I think that's part of my frustration. Um, I, I, I get it. I, I feel like Tommy Lee Jones and his, uh, I don't want to call it a monologue, but it's almost monologue when he's, uh, was that his brother who we went to go visit? Uncle, I think. They, oh, I, uncle? I, I think. I like that. And that kind of gave me, that gave me more of a clue into what's going on. But I don't feel like we spent enough time with Tommy Lee Jones to have it really be about that. I think if we spent more time with him and cause I, the thing with Llewellyn, you know, just walking up and, and seeing him dead, it's like all of a sudden the movie shifted to Tommy Lee Jones's viewpoint. And we, we hadn't been in his viewpoint. Like we, we've just, he's been, we've seen bits and pieces of what's going on with him, little vignettes. But now it's like they wanted to kind of be like, oh no, it's really about Tommy Lee Jones and his character. And it's like, but we haven't spent enough time for it to, to be about him. So I, that's, that's where I'm kind of, that's, that's where I feel when I say I'm unsatisfied, that's where it's coming from. No, I think that makes sense. And that that's clear to me um, where I would come with a little bit of a counterpoint would be the idea that his character, uh, it, it, the, the title of the film, which is no country for old men. So the concept being, he's kind of, inter and I get what you're saying. Like if you always, if we spent a little more time with his character, like then we can kind of lean into his protagonist archetype, but because we don't, you don't feel it as much. And so that makes sense to me. The other yeah. thing that I would think about is, uh, and, it, and it, this is getting, I don't want to get overly meta here, but like, this is like <laughs> the idea that they've played the story that way on purpose. So the concept being that a no country for old men is old men getting lost in the shuffle of new risings. So new, new things coming up. And so literally in the storyline, we're kind of getting him intermixed, but the real, the real arc of it or the real kind of the, the keystone is these two younger men going to battle, which is actually indicative of the real world, which is like the youngsters are the ones kind of the, we're focused on and we kind of the older ones kind of fade out and they intermittently come into play once in a while. And so it's kind of a, a play into that in some weird way. And I'm not trying to get overly analytical with it, but I kind of see how that plays into it while still keeping him as the main, the, the, the arc of the story in terms of the protagonist. Um, exactly. I think if any other filmmakers try to do what they do with, with, like you said, and, and changing, it wouldn't work. Yeah, you can't. And I look and, and uh, Alan hates it, but Coen brothers are fantastic. And the reality is they're just masterful filmmakers. And I agree, you can't, other, other filmmakers aren't good. If I tried to go make this movie right now, it'd be pretentious <laughs> as shit. And everyone would be like, what the hell is this kid doing? So you, it, it carries weight with it because of who made it. And so I agree with you there. Absolutely, Anthony. Um, look, here's a little bit of a thing on the summation for me. I think it's, uh, I think it's masterful. I think it's about character. I think it's about really kind of human nature, but mostly I think it's about fate. 
And if you think about fate, you can't control it. You have no say whatsoever, despite what you think you can do or say or, or try to accomplish. It is what it is. The outcome is decided. And so <clears throat> I, I think that's kind of what it's about for me. And it sound, and it's very, it's kind of dark and disturbing because it's, it's also like you want a resolute ending. Well, we all kind of in life want some kind of resolute ending, but the reality is just existentialism exists and it is what it is. And we can't determine outcomes. Fate has a role in whatever it is. So I think they play into that really well. And I haven't read the novel. I would love to as well, Alan. I think that was one thing I would love to do. And maybe I'll go back and do is uh, read. I've actually read one of his novels called Sutri. And it's a great novel, but it's kind of got these nuances too. But I'd love to go read this one as well and kind of pull from that and see what the theme is coming out of that novel. All the research tells me they followed it pretty closely, uh, as, as close as you could for a two-hour movie. That, I mean, honestly, Gabe, I think you you got me quite a bit closer to understanding it. The, the idea that fate, that we don't get everything wrapped up in a, in a perfect little bow. I like that. I like that more than, well, you know, life just passes you by and there's a new generation coming up. Like to me, I like that, but I think it would have, I think the film would have to be restructured to really hit that home. Uh, but that, I, I kind of like that. That's making me feel like I'm a little bit closer to understanding what, what it's all about. It started getting so hot in my office. <laughs> Yeah, right there. Don't go out on escape. <laughs> and then I started coughing. <laughs> and the headphones start choking you. So then the headphones start choking me. Sorry. Sorry, <laughs> Alan. I missed the last little part of what you said right there. You pretty much said you put it the best way anyone's ever put that movie in the history of it. Oh, I heard him say that. I just wanted to hear him <laughs> okay. say it again. Okay. <laughs> I'm just kidding. And let me say this. I think that's I'm a hot take. Drop it. <laughs> I think I've got a quite a bad rap on this episode. I want to say I do not hate the Coen brothers. I like them. I think they're great. I do feel like they're in the majority of their films. I kind of have this similar feeling where I don't, I'm frustrated because I'm, I don't get it. I don't, which is, it's as, as someone, you know, a film buff as we all are. And, and I think anyone who is, who is listening to this is it's frustrating when you don't get it. And I'm consistently not getting it with the Coen brothers. And I think that's, um, that's totally my fault. It's not their fault at all, but it is, it, that is kind of a, a, it's frustrating, man. And it makes me feel stupid and I don't need any more help feeling stupid. Cause I feel like that all the time. So uh, that, it's, it's frustrating, but. that makes sense. Cause I feel that way a lot too. And then I walk out and as you just said, I think you alluded to it, which is like as filmmakers and film buffs and people who love movies and enthusiasts, when you don't grasp it, and this happens to me all the time, and when you don't grasp it, you feel dumb. <laughs> you never want to be the one to admit you don't get it. Right, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I've gotten I've gotten the age now where I don't even care anymore. Like I don't but here's I, the here's I agree with that too, Alan. But here's the other thing is that um, the reality is even if I the that's the beauty of it too, because every film has a level of interpretation. So for like, that's how I felt. Right. But that's not what the Coen brothers intended. I don't know what the hell they intended, but I, but, but do you know what I'm saying? So that's the beauty of it is you can kind of take different paths and interpret it other ways. So. Right. right. Yeah. It's, but I, I gave you definitely got me quite a bit closer to, to grasping it. Alan, it's like what we said with Kubrick, anybody who goes into the movie 
like walking out and being like, oh, here's exactly what Kubrick was doing right. is full of shit. <laughs> right. So, well, I, unless they were on set. Unless they're uh, what's the film worker. What's his name? I just went blank from the documentary. Oh, Leon Vitale. Thank you. Leon, thank you. Yeah, yes. You thank you. Sir. I'm actually interested because when we eventually end up doing 2001, I can't wait to hear Gabe's interpretation of that one. Love that movie. That's all I'm going to say. Seven I'll leave hour it podcast. There. I'll leave it there. That's a four hour podcast at least. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I want to do a couple. Uh, so Anthony, we always do. A, we always read a couple Google reviews just like randomly. I'll just pick them. I don't pre-screen them or anything. So I don't know what we're going to get into. This is where we're going to hear Alan's fun laugh though. Cause I try to choose ones that look it's like they're have bad stars ratings. I, the reason I love this segment so much is it's just encaps it, it it encapsulates the internet so perfectly, perfectly. Just the utter stupidity of people out there. Just I, I don't know what I'm talking about, but I have an opinion. And I'm going to type it up as poorly as possible. Basically, the premise of this whole podcast. Exactly. <laughs> That's what it is. Uh, okay. Uh, I, you know, I'm going to have to start out by just reading ones that are good because I'm, as you would anticipate, it's harder to find the bad ones, right? So uh, here's one from Daniel. Okay, ready from Daniel here. This movie gets better each time I watch it. Bardem's performance is one for the ages. It does the original text justice and also becomes a classic aesthetic pillar for 21st century cinema goers. Damn, Daniel, coming in hot with a five star. Yeah, I, I agree with with that was that. actually that's one of the more poignant ones we've read. I think. It is. Yeah, that was Man. clear. Dan, Daniel, you're welcome to come on the podcast anytime. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's see if we can't find one of those ones that are fun. Here we go. I think I got a one two star, Alan. Wait, ready? Alan's uh, burner. Here it is. Oh, yeah, damn it's my, it's my burner account. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it. I just lost it. I was scrolling and then, you know, this will be an edit point in the, in the let me find Gabe, it. There did, we go. Compared to this to real quick to there will be blood that came out in the same year. Quick for a quick second. Did you see both? Did you guys see that there will be blooded around the same time? And yep. what was the, what was the, what was the, I loved them both. between the two? I'd dock it up to the same yeah. for me. I mean, on, in a brief answer, same. Yeah, I'm just curious because I know they came out in the same year, and I just wanted to. That was, that was the one where I, I didn't get it, but I was I was a little bit uh, the first time I saw it, I, I didn't quite understand it, but I was I was more okay with not understanding that one at first. Mm. That that's a good point, Alan. On that one, real quick, I uh, I didn't understand there will be blood. Like this one, I felt like I had a little more grasp of. I didn't understand there will be blood, but I liked it a lot. <laughs> so. Me too. Here's a, oh, here we go. Three months ago, relatively new from David. One star coming in. Oh, hot. No. <laughs> <laughs> Why would anyone want to watch such a mean, nasty, unpleasant, repugnant, wretched, violent, <laughs> twisted, demeaning, and more words that I can't bring to mind film? Oh my God, that's that's fantastic! That's amazing. Other just, than he used demeaning twice, I can I can go with it. It was really. <laughs> well, what is demeaning about this film? 
yeah, I have no idea. Demeaning. Nothing's demeaning about it. <laughs> Google. Uh, he just went to thesaurus.com and tried to look up different words. I got one. Okay, I got one more okay. for you. Let me, uh, One Year Ago by Harmon. Let me define this movie for you. <laughs> of 10 things in order numerically. Here we go. Boring, boring, interesting, boring, slow, interesting, boring, boring, slow, the end. <laughs> yeah, I knew, I knew that one would get Alan laughing. That's a good one. But one person found that helpful. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Just one. Okay, last one on my side. Here we go. Brilliant film, top cast, good script, and in my view, better than the book. Wow, that's yeah. rare. I haven't read the book, so I can't confer. Okay, let's see. I Alan, got. You said you found one. Yeah, I have a couple. I'm trying to decide. This is from Jamal. I hate this movie. The way the main character <laughs> died and the and the loose ending. However, its action scenes and its cast were really good. <laughs> One star. The most contradictory review I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> One star. It doesn't matter about how good the action scenes and the cast were. Um, Oh, wait, here's one, Alan, too. Anthony, here we go. Ready? Soup Boys Creations, one star. Waste of time, dot, dot, dot. The only best and memorable thing is Psycho acting in his looks other than this worst movie. I read it verbatim. That's, that's good, yeah. That's, I did not make that. That's how it was wrote. That's how, that's how it was wrote. So. Okay, I got, I got one more. This is okay, from... Let's do one more. Gitra. One star. Word movie I have ever seen. No one lived in the end. Villain wins and others loose. Time waste movie. I don't know how, how this get three or four stars. Worst movie. <laughs> Worst movie. Oh my gosh. I love it. I can I appreciate those people though. We need those people who give these movies we do. stars. Yeah, I, I, yes, I, we do. But you know what? I, I, was, I searched for one star reviews. It's all about the ending. Everyone hated the ending. I'm, I'm just glad I'm not alone. I honestly thought I was alone in this. I bet you 90% of those people, though, if you would have made the ending they wanted, they would have disliked you, it just as much. Yeah, probably. You were as, lo as alone as Ed Tom. Yeah. Oh, coming in with some comparisons to the film. Good job, okay. dude. <laughs> that's that uh the teaching credential showing off right there. That's, a, that's what uh, <laughs> I didn't pay for that MFA for nothing. <laughs> <laughs> oh man okay let's go with the uh, rotten tomatoes uh <clears throat> the rotten tomatoes is at a 93 percent on this film from the critics and 86 percent from the audience so that's probably as expected no yeah with I mean, the ending about expected 8.1 on imdb that's pretty high that's pretty low, I think, for this. It's film. pretty high. Well, it is low, I, I would say, for me, too. But for IMDb, it's actually correct. 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 You're right about that. Um, and then <clears throat> the last one here, and then we'll go into Anthony's uh, ratings, is uh, Roger Ebert, right? Uh, four stars. He didn't go back and revise this later? No, he came out the gate swinging. Four stars. So Anthony, what we do is we, do, as, as you know, cause I know, thank you again for listening, but we do a 10 out of 10 and then we try to attach some kind of prop to it. 
based on in, in, in the movie, some kind of character or prop or some kind of dumb thing, right? So out of 10, where are you at with a little summary and then a, a rating? First of all, thank you guys again for having me on. I appreciate this. It's been quite, I've been looking forward to this for a while since I, I had asked you about it. Uh, quarantines are quite a dull for, for most of us. I imagine uh, listening to your podcast has helped me out a few days. And uh, so just appreciating you guys having me on. I, I enjoy listening to both you guys. Well, um, let me just say real quick. Thank you, man. I appreciate that. And thanks for yeah. listening. Thank you for coming. Uh, on. This has been fun. We'll, we'll have to get you on again because it's been absolutely. a blast. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we could chat up some horror films. I'd, I'd love to do that with Alan. Um, but I would give this film a 9.7 Woody Harrelson cowboy hats out of 10. Damn. I like that. I like and that. Prop, I think yeah. his cowboy hat is amazing. I love his cowboy hats and in, in all of his scenes. Um, and I love this movie so much. I think it goes out being said everything I've said be- before. Pretty perfect movie in my eyes. Um, doesn't really miss a beat anywhere i'm only not going to give it a 10 because nothing's perfect in my eyes i don't think there's a single perfect movie uh out there but this just one and maybe clock clockwork orange but that's between me and you and that's you know i think it's perfect in in every sense of the word entertaining and well you're you're not alone in that because the reality is uh peter travers also said a new career peak for the coen brothers and in 2016, it was voted the 10th uh, best film of the 21st century, as picked by film critics around the world. So it's you're not alone in your sentiment. I like the Woody Harrelson hats as a prop and uh, 9.7 coming in uh, with Anthony's rating. Alan, where are you at on the rating? Let me guess, 9.8. 9. <laughs> uh, again, great movie. I, I, I don't want to belabor the point ending really just left me unsatisfied but other than that it, it really is fantastic um i just for some reason i can't get that bad taste out of my mouth with that ending i just can't get past it i don't know why a lot of the times i can with films if they, if they don't stick the landing but this one is just it's sticking with me i don't know i don't know what it is but uh that said i'm going 7.5 coins Ooh, i like that i like coins nice now you got me thinking. I uh, I got to I got What am I going to use for my prop? That's so, uh, I think we've kind of uh, gone over the the things that we like about the movie. Uh, I'm kind of leaning towards uh, Anthony's rating. Look, this is a this is a great movie. I think you look at uh, craftsmanship, you look at all the technical and artistic excellence, and I think not to beat a dead horse, but all those things matter, and I think they kill it again. So. Um, one of the things too, Alan, which on this podcast, we did Blood Simple because that was their first film. And we do a lot of first time directors feature films. And this is, you know, this is basically 20, actually, this is, this is actually, yeah, about 20 years later, plus 20 plus years. Um, what's the consensus there real quick, Alan, based on, and, and I'll ask you too, Anthony, Blood Simple to this in terms of one of the things we talk about is like a lot of times first time directors don't always kill it. <laughs> they, they have a hard time with a movie and Rarely their first do they. Fi- yeah. And their first films aren't very good. I think with blood simple, it was the opposite. At least for me, it was, I thought they just, it's like they came out the womb ready to make movies. Uh, what was the comparison between the two or did you find a growth in filmmaking or did you find a pretty steady hand? 
I don't remember what the score, what my score was for Blood Simple. I remember liking it very much, though. I'd have to go back and listen to it. And it's been a while since I've seen the film, so I'd have to rewatch it. But uh, just based on, on my memory, this is I, I, I enjoyed this more. Uh, it's just technically perfect. Like, it really is about as technically perfect as a film can get. Until they shit the bed at the end when they did. When they, yeah, when Lewin... I mean, really, it really is just story-wise. And that may have just been from the story they inherited from the book. I don't know. Anthony, what about you? In terms of progression, if people are listening and they're looking at like a, a kind of a progression of filmmaking and your, your skill set increasing over time, what's the comparable between their first film and then this one, the uh, No Country, for you? I think, I think they steadily get better with every film that they were doing since Blood Simple. And like you said, I think they were one of those filmmakers that came out of the womb ready to make movies, making Super 8 films when they were six years old or whatever. Had that ability to tell stories from a very young age, quite, quite obvious. Blood Simple, 1984, this 2007. So there's a lot of years, like you said, in between the two of them. And I think, I think this is their climax of their career. You know, the apex where they're really starting to take off. Uh, you know, the sensibilities of all their films before where I felt like, oh, this is a Coen Brothers movie. You could watch them and be like, this is a Coen Brothers movie. Watching No Country, it's a little bit different. In fact, where it's like, this is a different sensibility. Had to get used to it. But I think they knock it out of the park. And I think that between Blood Simple and, and, and No Country, that's, they don't really miss much of a beat. They get, they get better and better, I think. Yeah, I find that uh, pretty interesting. That uh, I find it very interesting. I don't mean to cut you off, but I find it very interesting that their next film was Burn After Reading, which is a completely wacky film in its own right. Yeah, I think to me, and that's a good point, and I'll, I'll end on that with uh, my rating, but I think the point being that uh, what I like most about the Coen brothers is their ability to be diverse in their, in their stories. Uh, they have similar characterization in, in how they do it in terms of de development of character, uh, but story-wise and aesthetic and atmosphere, they all kind of change from film to film. Um, and this one, uh, I love it a lot because it reminds me so much of Blood Simple and it's as though they were able to get another chance at making something even better than that. So uh, this one comes in uh, higher for me than Blood Simple. And I got to go back and check my rating on Blood Simple too. But for No Country for Old Men, I think about if I was to, uh, I'll pull the, the teacher card real quick again, Alan, which is like, if, I if a student came to me and said, hey, what do I need to watch to learn to be a filmmaker? This would be in the top 10 films of them to watch to be a filmmaker. If they really wanted to study all of those aesthetics of filmmaking from writing to editing to cinematography and everything that falls in between, this film would be in that top 10 of them to, to go watch and study, like actually study out how they did it. Um, and so that's pretty high regard. I think um, <clears throat> the film to me, it's, it's, it's actually going to come in at a 9.1. I'm going to go one full scale above IMDb and it's going to be 9.1 air pistols. Cause that's the only thing I could think of. I was hoping to say that we, we, one of us had to say that it had to be done. Right. Yeah. I was it saving, I was saving done. it for the host. <laughs> so uh, that's no country for old men, 2007 film by the Coen brothers uh, starring uh, Tommy Lee Jones, Javier Bardem and Josh Brolin. Also, uh, the screenplay written by the Coen brothers and also edited by the Coen brothers. Uh, 
uh, or Roderick Jane. Go check out that story for more laughs and giggles because they uh, have a ghost editor named Roderick Jane. Um, this is uh, Gabe Allen and our special guest, Anthony, uh, for the Tame Aperture podcast. Until next time, everybody, take care. The Tame Aperture podcast is produced by Dutch Angle Pictures in association with Studio B Productions. Listen, watch, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and YouTube.